0: Amen. Good morning. We're in First John chapter 2. So Father, in Jesus' name, we we plead the blood of Jesus over this place. Lord, we ask for uh, the mind of Christ for clarity. We ask for ears that would hear the word of God. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you have your way with us, mold us, shape us? And would you make this house, Lord, a house of praise and exaltation? Would we be a people who adore Jesus above all else? All idolatry would fall to the side. And we love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Somebody say amen. Amen. Last week, we talked some about um uh, Dr. Martin Lord Jones and his uh, teaching on on what saving faith is. And, and we said that he was a, a brilliant man and an articulate man. But he was also known for, um, to be a bit opinionated and to have, um, at from time to time, a a showdown with another leader, which at times just happens and is necessary. Um, but in the, in the sixties, there was a real move, uh, for the church to embrace an ecumenical spirit. Um, and there was a lot of talk about like the, the Anglicans and the Methodists. Um, eventually remerging together or um presbyterians and congregationalists coming back together and there were a lot of people who were lobbying for the protestant reformation and uh catholicism to kind of stitch up their uh their issues and and for there to be one global church and uh, it was kind of a trend to talk about and um Justin Taylor wrote an article that that really tells the story well but uh, Lloyd Jones uh, was invited by John Stott, who was John Stott was a really influential preacher um, as well. I mean, was was known. He was a bit younger than Lloyd Jones, but he was he he still is talked about today. Um, Stott was to be the head of a meeting where they were going to talk about what it would look like for the church to be more ecumenical in uh, in Westminster, and he invited Martin Lloyd Jones to come and speak. So Lloyd Jones. Uh, He gives a a sermon on um, what it looks like to be ecumenical. But the entire thrust of his sermon is this. Um, And if you can imagine, especially in this, well, it started earlier, but by the 60s and 70s, the mainline denominations had really begun to embrace a liberal attitude and a liberal spirit. And so it's very popular in even like in, in some Lutheran churches and in some Methodist churches it's popular for people to teach things like um, the Bible is not authoritative or we don't really know if Jesus raised from the dead. Um, We don't really know if Mary was a virgin. What really matters is that you find inner peace. Um, That that kind of movement towards liberal theology had already taken root. And so when Lloyd-Jones takes the platform to talk about what it means to be ecumenical, he argues that evangelicals, or people who believe the Bible is true and believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and who believe that you must be born again, evangelicals should be loyal to evangelicals and should be faithful to evangelicals and that you can't be more committed to your denomination than you are committed to brothers and sisters in Christ who actually believe the word of God and that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, that was a big thought and like really flustered a lot of people. What he was saying is that in the Anglican church, there were people who believed the Bible was true, believed that Jesus was uh, conceived of a virgin, believed that Jesus died for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead. And in the Anglican churches, there were men and women who didn't believe that at all, who just taught from platforms that you should just be kinder. Now, the entire message was like, be kind and find peace. So in the Anglican movement, there were people who were real Christians and people who were not real Christians. And in the Methodist movement, there were people who were real Christians who believed the Bible, who taught faithfully the scriptures. And then there were people in the Methodist movement who were not real Christians. And Lloyd-Jones argued that the people in the Anglican movement and the people in the Methodist movement who were real Christians should be more committed to one another than they are committed to their denominations. So you have to be more faithful to the doctrine, to the gospel, to the true faith, than you are faithful to your denominational history or background. And that really ruffled feathers because, again, they were talking about Catholics and Protestants coming back together. They didn't want to hear Lloyd-Jones say, hey, actually, there's a lot of heretics floating around in your pulpits, and, and we need to unite with believers and separate from those who are clinging to heretical doctrines. Now, the logical implications of what Lloyd-Jones was saying really frustrated people because if you take that logic to the extreme, many people thought he was saying that if you were a born again believer and evangelical within a church that was teaching that the Bible wasn't true or that Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, that you should separate from out of that church. I actually think that that probably is the right move. Um, so that would be succeeding from a false church to, to either join a Bible believing preaching church or to start one. Um, but that would mean there would be a great shakedown. Um, John Stott and many others believed the opposite. They believed that Bible believers should stay within compromised churches and try to reform those churches from within. That's an awesome idea, uh, but it doesn't always work historically. So there are consequences to the idea of Bible believers leaving compromised churches. For instance, today, almost all of the property, the seminaries, The historic churches that are beautiful and our great-great-grandfathers and mothers who love the Bible and preach the gospel built, those historic churches are now owned or possessed by people who do not believe the Bible. Why is that so? Because Bible believers kept leaving. (laughs) Does that make sense? That those who clung to the faith kept separating. So there's a real question that arises, and I would lean towards Lloyd-Jones today. I have friends who are Methodist pastors and who have just succeeded or just left the United Methodist denomination because of their compromise on some scriptural issues. Um, I lean towards Lloyd Jones. I think there's a time and place to, to give up on trying to reform from the inside, um, and to break away and, and, and unite with people who actually believe the Bible and preach the Bible. Okay. Are you guys following my thoughts so far? So you have to think through, for instance, in Galatians chapter six, Paul says when a brother falls we should restore him in a spirit of humility so there's a time and place for restoration and then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 Paul says this I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunker or swindler don't even eat with such a one so there's a time and place for restoration And um, loving a brother with meekness and humility and trying to restore. And then there's a time and place for disassociation. Um, And that's just Bible, right? Like that wasn't Caleb's opinion. Like Paul teaches that. And so we need to be able to discern well, when is the time for bearing with one another and challenging one another and loving one another through backslidden states and sin, through my bad attitudes and your bad attitudes and when is it a time and a place to where Paul says not even eat with to disassociate with so what we're finding in the epistle of first John is that they uh, the false teachers are lobbying for what we would call secession they're lobbying for the uh, for the church to disassociate from the larger church from the larger brothers and sisters in Christ and for that reason, a lot of times and commentaries or uh, teachers will talk about the false teachers that have now infiltrated the church in Ephesus. They will call them Gnostic um, secessionists. So Gnostic, again, is their teaching. These false teachers are teaching uh, Gnostic theology that everything that is spirit is good and everything that is matter is evil. It's dualistic. And they're teaching that when you come to their theology, you have a revelation or an enlightenment and you rise in your spiritual state. These Gnostics are now becoming sectarian in saying that we're going to we're going to cause the church in Ephesus to to break away from any brother or sister who would argue for the Orthodox historical faith. Okay, so. we We want to see in the Bible that there's a time and a place to bear with and a time and a place to break away. And we have to acknowledge that sometimes we need to break away in order to preserve the true faith while other times people are promoting a breaking away, not to preserve the true faith, but to pervert it. Now, that is the crux of the matter. Is it, The Protestant Reformation, um, Martin Luther did not want to break away from the Catholic Church. Martin Luther, everything in him was trying to reform the, the Catholic Church from the inside. Um, but there came a place where Martin Luther had to decide, I cannot continue on because there's such a perversion Of the gospel in the roman church we're going to have to succeed in order to preserve and promote the true gospel that happens on the other side every false movement led by heretical prophet um uh, i was thinking this morning i don't know why i was thinking about the um the pentecostal oneness movement came out of the azusa street revival which we would look to the azusa street revival and say praise god god moved the gifts of the spirit began to flow it was beautiful but there was a there was a person who said that they had a, uh, a prophetic dream in which they learned that the Trinity was wrong and that that they taught modalism, that, that God was only one person, that he just changed modes. Um, and that individual, they they made themselves a sect. They broke away from the rest of the movement to prop up this false doctrine. And that is succeeding for the sake of perverting. OK, you guys following me so far? This is this is really important and and again might not tickle your ears but it could save your soul one day. So I don't know, I just pay attention to what I'm about to say, okay? Um let's let's read the the scriptures and and we'll we'll unpack it. You guys know how we do, kind of line by line. 1 John chapter 2 verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, let me let me just stir up context again. John, elder, he's old, the last living apostle, writing to house churches in Ephesus. These house churches, it's actually interesting to think about. And this comes up later in the text, so forgive me if I repeat this later, but um. Christianity has always wildly embraced hospitality, okay? So fundamentally, and you'll find this command in the scripture over and over again, you should be a hospitable people, welcoming the stranger, your, your door should be open, you should be ready and willing to serve other people. But what's happening is false teachers throughout the writing of the New Testament will exploit the hospitality of the church. Does this make sense? Um, so the church says, of course you can come have dinner with us, And the false teacher says, now let me tell you why you're wrong about your doctrine. They're exploiting their hospitality for the sake of using the church as a platform to project or proclaim their own false doctrines. And so John is writing to the church, to the house churches in Ephesus. And John is saying, these men that are teaching and leading you, they are not Christian leaders. They are trying to secede from the true Christian church. Not because they're preserving the gospel, but because they want to pervert it. And in order to pervert it, they need you to break away from any brother or sister who will go toe-to-toe with them and argue them down. So there is a place in the Christian faith where teachers and leaders have to go toe-to-toe and reason together and find common ground and find uh, pure doctrine. But heretics and false teachers will always avoid the confrontation of one elder man of God with another elder man of God uh, um, arguing, reasoning together, trying to find truth. Because heretics don't want to find truth, they want to pervert. And so what we have is a perversion, a perversion of the gospel, a perverted teaching that is um, being spread, and now they're trying to break away or have a hard break from the true church so that they can continue on with what we would call their shenanigans, okay? So, so far in John's epistle, he's told us three reasons Why we can know that these Gnostic secessionists are false teachers. Three reasons why we can know that they're false. One, he says they teach a false Christology. Remember, we went over this the first week. So these false teachers are teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh, but that he was just kind of a ghost, kind of a spirit that floated around. Because matter is evil, Jesus couldn't have taken on matter And John calls that a false Christology, and John says, I knew him, I touched him, I leaned my head back against him, and he not only had a body, but he bled for us. Okay, so John says, right away, false teachers, they have a false Christology. Second, John says, they teach a false idea of human depravity. And so, Jesus taught, the apostles taught, that every human being through all all of history, Struggled with sin, fell to sin, that we were ate up with sin. But these men are teaching that actually my body sins, my matter sins, but my spirit is totally pure. And so, yeah, my body may commit sexual immorality. My body may be uh, a drunkard. My body may be a liar, but my spirit is pure. Therefore, I have ascended to this place of being free from sin. And John says they don't teach about sin rightly, they make Jesus a liar. And John says, by the way, they're stupid, okay? So, so they teach the wrong Christology, and they, they teach the wrong doctrine concerning human depravity. And then John says, because of their doctrine of human depravity, they live in darkness. Remember, that's the line he keeps giving. They live in unrepentant sin. So John's teaching the church how to discern, right? How to understand who are the people that we bear with And continue on with. And we're actually commanded to celebrate and love. And who are the people who we need to disassociate with? Now we need to disassociate so far from these teachers for these three reasons. They teach Christ wrong. They proclaim that they're sinless. While they continue on in sin. And John says these people are are false teachers for these three reasons. Now the fourth reason that he exposes today. Is John says we know these people live in darkness. Because they hate. The brothers. Okay. They hate the brothers. Who are the brothers? The true saints. They, they hate you. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and hate the apostles of Jesus. They're squaring off with the apostle John and John saying like, you, you're not a Christian. If you don't love the apostles, if you don't love the elders. And so the, the fourth reason we know that these people are not christians is because they do not love the brotherhood and jesus said to the disciples you remember they will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another so one of the telltale tests of who is a christian and who is not a christian is that christians have a deep love and celebration for other christians okay and so again if we follow lloyd jones logic um I'm commanded, and and not even commanded, but in my spirit, God's deposited a deep love for every Anglican who loves the Bible, proclaims the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and is truly born again. I not only tolerate them, I celebrate them and cherish what God is doing in their lives. And I am more committed to this gospel of Jesus' life, burial, and resurrection than I am committed to the fact that we disagree on secondary doctrines. Um, so I'm commanded to love and celebrate the Baptists who preach the Bible and love the Bible. I don't just tolerate them. I love them. Oh. <laughs> I, <was> think- <laughs> I was thinking of Will Ferrell and the elf, you know, when he's like, <laughs> when he gets so happy. Um, that's how I feel. You know, you know where Wolf Eros and his dad. You guys know the movie. You know, right? He's in his dad's office for the first time. He's like, "I love you, I love you." That's how I feel about the Baptists. And they're like, "I hate you, tongue talkers." I love you. Um, so the the fourth reason we know that these men are false is because they they hate the brothers, um, and th- that that is the line of trying to be sectarian. Now John begins to argue this way. He's writing again to the beloved. And so he's narrowed down his audience to the people within the congregation who are true believers. So this is like historically, every church has taught this, that there's a visible church and there's an invisible church. You guys remember we've done this before. The visible church are the people gathered in the congregation. The invisible church are the people gathered in the congregation that actually belong to Christ, okay? And so John has narrowed his line of communication now to the invisible church, the people in the congregation, who actually are born again, love God, love the Scripture, and love the saints. So he starts by calling them the invisible church, the beloved. I'm writing to you, beloved. Then he says, I'm writing to you not a new command, but an old uh, an old command. And then he says, it's not a, it's not a um, it's not a new command, but an old command, but it is a new command. And logically speaking, your brain's spinning and saying, how can it be an old command and a new command? And what John is saying is, I'm bringing you the command that you've heard from the beginning. And so the command that he's talking about is to love the brothers. And he says, this command is old because we find it in the old covenant, right? When they asked Jesus, how do we fulfill all the law? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the old commandment is there all throughout um, Israel's history. The command to love was there. But then in another sense, the command is new because Jesus grabs that command and brings it to prominence. And then Jesus says, I want you to apply this afresh every day. So the command is new because it's every day I, I sit up in bed, I bring it to the front of my mind. And the command for today, when all is said and done, is to love God with all of me and to love my neighbor as myself. Love becomes to the forefront of, of Jesus' of Jesus's teaching. Now... Why does John say, I'm not bringing you a new command? Because John is combating the idea um, that whatever is new must be good. Okay? You live in a society where you crave novelty or newness. And what happens in false movements is someone comes with a new teaching. And people in the room who are bored with their faith, and if you're bored with your faith, I just want you to know the problem's on you. It's not on Jesus. He's wildly interesting. Um, the people in the room who have become bored with their faith will start to crave novelty. Okay? When you crave novelty and new doctrine, you're actually driven by what the Bible calls itching ears. You just want something to tickle you, to excite you. And John is combating this, this tendency in, in humanity to always want the new. See so he's saying my teaching's not new. This is old. It's new because I'm asking you to apply it today. But this is this is old. This is from the beginning. Now there we've just uncovered a principle that we really need to think well about, okay? The principle being again that that new revelation is 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 not the desire of the Christian. Okay? Now, hear me say When you say, I want revelation of the Bible, if what you mean is I want to understand it better and not only understand it, but I want it to sink from my brain to my heart so that it's revealed to me, I want what Jesus taught to be revealed to my inner man, we would say yes and amen, right? That's what we're here for this morning is to hear the word of God and we're praying that the word of God would pass through our ears to our minds and into our heart. And we want revelation of the word of God. And and the church for all of history would say yes and amen. But what happens, especially, guys, I'm just going to be honest, in the types of churches that we are, in charismatic Pentecostal churches, we are way more at risk of this. What happens is people use that language, I want new revelation. And we all go, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We want new revelation of what God said too so that we can live it out and love it. But what they're actually saying is I want new doctrine, new, fresh teaching. I want prophecies that I'm going to elevate to the place of Scripture. Now, we believe in the prophetic. But like when we look at the prophetic in Scripture, uh, when you look at Agabus, for instance, in the New Testament era, when Agabus prophesies, he prophesies that there's going to be a famine. And the prophecy that there's going to be a famine helps the local churches to save money and save food to support people who are now living in a famine. Agabus does not bring a fresh revelation about the nature of Christ, the nature of Christ, that foundation was established by the apostles, okay? And so when someone in Azusa street says, I had a revelation about the nature of Christ, Jesus is the father and the father is the spirit. There's not three persons. There's only one. The true church has to rise up and say, that may be really exciting right now, but that's wrong. And what happens guys, let's just be straight. We watch too much TBN, okay? And we listen to these people with their dreams and visions and you get more you get so excited that you run you, you know, you outrun your headlights. You get excited about the new teaching, but at no point did you sit down with elders in the church and reason with the scriptures. Because the goal of the church, and this is my goal, I'm going to be honest with you. I want to live the Christian life that Jesus taught. And the reason I want to live, the, the, the because I want to live the Christian life that Jesus taught, I want to study the writing of the apostles. Why? Because they lived and walked with Jesus. Okay, um, there, are some, there are some people today, and, and, I'm, and I don't know, mean to be controversial at all, but there are some people today who are really flirting in this world of, I had a dream that, that taught about angelic nature or that taught me something new about humanity. Scratch it. Novelty, newness is not goodness. Not, the new is not always good. New un, new understanding and revelation to apply what Jesus taught is always good. But new doctrine is not what we're, we're after. We're after uncovering the faithful, the true. And so the principle that we find is this. The prophetic dreams and visions help us to understand when and how to apply the scriptures. If someone has a dream and they say, in this dream, I felt like God showed me that you were struggling with this sin. Um, Here's some scripture, think you should pray about it. And if you can say, and honestly, I am struggling with that sin, then the prophetic has now helped you to apply the scriptures. But the prophetic is not for teaching doctrine. The greatest problem that charismatic and Pentecostal people have, have caused in the last 50 years is this. Just because someone dreams dreams does not make them a teacher. You can have a prophetic gift that doesn't make you a preacher. You can say, I see visions and my visions are true. That's incredible. That's a gift of the Spirit. But if you cannot exegete the Bible, if you haven't read the Bible for longer than 10 minutes in your life, you don't get a microphone. And and do you guys hear what we're... in our, in our zeal to want to re-embrace the prophetic, and we want to honor the prophetic because the Bible says that we should pursue prophecy, right? We pursue prophecy because the Bible says so. In our zeal of saying we want to honor the prophetic, we've dishonored the scripture and the teaching gift. And so there's a, there's a time and a place for each. That doesn't mean that someone should never prophesy from the platform. They certainly can prophesy from the platform. It just means that, that prophets don't get a pass on sloppy doctrine because they dreamed a dream. To dream. There's actually no Christian world where that should be controversial, okay? There's no such thing historically where anything I just said is controversial, but for some reason it is today. Okay, so now the old commandment and the new commandment, it's old in that it's always been there, it's new in that it's fresh and we gotta apply it today, is that we should love the brothers. John thirteen thirty-five. by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is how people will be able to discern or test you. If you have love for one another. Jesus taught rather plainly, and John recorded in his gospel, that one of the telltales, one of the great signs as to whether or not a person is a true saint is whether or not a person really loves the true saints. Again, Will Ferrell in his dad's office, like, you love, I love you, I love you, I love you. That kind of love for true saints. If a person wants to secede and break away from everybody, if they keep pigeonholing and pigeonholing and pigeonholing themselves into a smaller and smaller box so that they can stand up and say, I have something you don't, you should actually question that person's salvation, that person's sincerity concerning the gospel. Now, let me say this. I am in no way, in absolute 0%, no way, against people who say, I like smaller congregations. I like small church. People who say, I like the house church. People who say, I like liturgy. Or those of us who say, we like to raise our hands and roll on the ground every now and again. Like there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm a Spanish speaker and I need to attend a church that preaches in Spanish because my English, I can't quite grab on to what's being said. There's nothing wrong with participating in the life of a particular congregation because that congregation in some way better serves your your life. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, And I'm actually vehemently against the idea that Protestants are somehow divisive. Again, I love Baptists. Good God, I love them. Um, I I don't in any way have disunity with them. I just worship with my family, and they worship with their family. And when they struggle, we pray for them. And when we struggle, they pray for us. That's not disunity. Uh, Not even close. What is is disunity, and and this might be controversial, is when you find movements that want to keep breaking and breaking and breaking. And, and sometimes you find this in house church movement where it's, we're the only true Christians left and everyone else, they're sinners and they've fallen short and they they are awful. Um, that kind of spirit is anti-Christian. Now, if you said to me, we've started a house church and we love house church and we want to plant other house churches and we love each other and we eat, eat a meal and then read the gospel together. I, forgive me. I don't mean to be crass here. I don't care at all. That's awesome, man. Party on. Save me some snacks. Um, But if you said to me, I started a house church because every church on this island, they're so wrong doctrinally and they're all led by evil men and they're all. I don't think you're a Christian. Though You've got to be able to discern and reason through those things. Now, loving the saints, loving the brotherhood becomes foundational and central to who we are. Those who build their movement or build their congregations by actively hating or opposing everyone else, they are not in the light. Not in the light. Next, um, I'll start to wind down here. Sorry, I'm reaching for a clock. Um, oh, yep, talk too long. Take that. I got another 45 minutes, so. <laughs> um, the last part of this that we read is John saying, I'm writing to you children because... Uh, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know the father. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. You remember that that passage part of the scripture. Um let me say a few things. One, John is not dividing the church on the basis of their Christian maturity. He's not saying I'm writing to you children, those of you who got saved in the last 6 months. I'm writing to you fathers, those of you who have been saved for 30 years. Writing to young men, those of you who have kind of been saved for a little while, but you're still maturing. Um, that's not what he's doing. And I mean that like contextually, exegetically, based on the language. That's just not what he's doing. I'm not, I'm not trying to make an argument except for it. Because I know we've been taught that. It's just not what's happening. Um, he's remember earlier he calls, and, and several times throughout the whole scripture, he calls all of the saints children. He call, refers to the whole church as my little children, my little children. So he's, he's actually... My little children, children is a phrase that embraces everybody. The delineation between uh, fathers and and young men is not a basis of maturity level and discipleship, but it 's totally in john 's writing always a delineation just an age um, and so children is everybody fathers is those of you who are older in the faith are old you're literally um, i didn 't say it John did <laughs> um, and then young men would be those of us in the room who are young men. That's, that's what the text is doing. And so let me, let me read to you this portion of the text again because I, I want to show you what's happening here is way more important than you realize when you read it too quickly. Um, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. That's everybody. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know who, him who is from the beginning. Oh, that's the older people in the room. I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what's happening here? What is John doing? It's really clear when you read this slowly for a while and meditate on it, that what the Gnostics are teaching, what the false teachers, the Gnostic sectarian men in this, that have infiltrated the church, what they are teaching is this: If you do not follow our doctrine, then you have not ascended to the spiritual heights that we've ascended to. We have matured beyond you. We have excelled in spirituality. We are elevated in our state. This is plain Gnostic teaching. Like we are superior spiritually in every way. Anyone who teaches what we teach, they are they're, they're super duper spiritual. And everyone who teaches what you teach, they lack the experience that we have. So John rebuts that by saying this. I'm writing to you, children, because your sins have been forgiven in Jesus' name, for Jesus' glory. So in other words, John is saying, they keep telling you what you're not. Let me tell you what you are. You are forgiven for the glory of Jesus. They keep telling you that you are not as high and as mighty as them. And John says, let me tell you, old men, you know the Father. Young men, they keep telling you that you're not as smart or you haven't, you just haven't had the revelation yet. Let me tell you what you are. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so John is actively telling the church. They they want to tell you uh, what you're not, what you've not accomplished, what you've not achieved. Let me tell you, your sins are forgiven. Don't listen to the heretics. You know Christ who is from the beginning and you believe rightly about him. Don't be intimidated by all of their gossip and slandering. You have overcome the evil one. You're strong. You have the word of God abiding in you. Don't let religious hypocrites tell you that you are less than because you refuse to chew on their faulty doctrine. Rather, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are born again because you trust in him alone. So these sectarians who are perverting, and then they all do this. I, gosh, I like, I won't go down the road of being hyper particular today. But all of these false movements do this. They have a false doctrine and the false doctrine, if you'll believe it, will somehow get you into the 144,000, okay? Um, keep knocking, buddy. This ain't the house for you. Um, the, the new doctrine somehow gets you in. It elevates you. It helps you to achieve something greater. And Christians have to stand and say, now let me tell you about the old doctrine that was from the beginning. That the blood of Jesus would cleanse the sins of anyone who would confess him as a Lord and Savior. Let me tell you about the doctrine that was from the beginning. That God who was in the beginning put on flesh because he loved us and went to Calvary and was violently beaten and bruised where he spilled holy blood for my atonement, for my forgiveness. Let me tell you about the doctrine that was from the beginning. When you come to God with faith, you are born again. Your heart of stone becomes heart of flesh. You receive a new nature in Christ. Let me tell you about the doctrine that was from the beginning. Jesus Christ will return for those who trust in him and him alone. Now you could say, Caleb, like how do we, what authority do we stand on? Like how do we say that we're right and they're wrong? I'll tell you how we say we're right and they're wrong. Because what we have is the teaching of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. What they have is the teaching of some man who dreamed a dream late at night. By God, our our Jesus taught this gospel and then said, by the way, I'm going to be crucified and then I'll get up in three days. And then, good God, he got up and the apostles stood around as he said, carry this gospel to the four corners of the earth. And they watched him ascend to the heavens on the clouds. How do I know that we're right? Because what we have is what the apostles had and what Jesus taught. I don't need what Joseph Smith taught. Let me tell you what was from the beginning. I don't need what the hyper-Pentecostals are teaching today. That their dreams have somehow um, led us to new doctrine about the spiritual. St- I don't need your new age mysticism. Let me tell you which was from the beginning. By faith alone in Christ alone. There's salvation for sinners. There's a washing. There's forgiveness. Who do we secede from? We secede from those who want to pervert that which was from the beginning. Who do we love We love and cherish and celebrate anyone who clings to that which was from the beginning. There are secondary doctrines, secondary things like um, we believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Others believe the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. They're wrong. We're right, obviously. Um, That secondary doctrine does not in any way bring division between us and them who cling to the foundational doctrines concerning Jesus there are secondary doctrines about the timing of Jesus' return. If you pulled 10 of us in a room, there would be 14 different opinions about when Jesus will return. That, that difference doesn't even come close to bringing division between us when we cling to the primary doctrines. Okay, so we got to understand primary and secondary. Anyone who clings to the primary doctrines of Jesus Christ, they're a brother or sister, and we do not break from them. We cherish them, love them, serve them with like all of our heart and energy. Anyone who keeps wanting to break this up on the basis of their new perverse teaching, we are to secede from them. There is a time and a place for secession. And it's when someone brings new doctrine to try to split down the church to create their own party, their own affiliation, their own hyper elevated state. You remember what you have, which was from the beginning, new life in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Need no other prophet. Have it all in Jesus. Need no other experience. I have it all in the blood of the lamb. Need no other lover. I got the Holy Ghost. He's enough. Um, and, and, and there, guys, there we're defending and leaning into historic, faithful Christianity. And that's what we want to make sure our kids get. Okay, that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to make sure our children understand. They're to love all the saints and to, to resist anyone who's trying to bring new doctrine to start their new you know, cult. If you stand to your feet, Desiree or or Emma, whoever's playing for me today, would you come?